0: How do you normally start cooking? Olive oil, right? Well, I have great news for you. This podcast is also brought to you by California Olive Ranch, expertly crafted extra virgin olive oil. Go to CaliforniaOliveRanch.com and enter the promo code CHICKENS10, that's one word, CHICKENS10, to receive 10% off your entire first purchase. The offer is available through December 31st. California Olive Ranch discovery starts in the bottle. Let's start the show.
1: Pastel
0: de nata. Churros. Brigadeiro. Calzone. Apple pie. mash. Toad in the hole. Welcome back for another amazing episode of Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. My name is David G. Martins and I'm the Executive Chef for the European Union Embassy in Washington, D.C. And if this is your first time listening, let me explain to you why my podcast has this name. I'm originally from Portugal and I've been living in Washington DC for the last nine years. And the name of the podcast refers to two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience, and breaking dishes means someone that has exceeded all expectations. I'll be asking my guests if they've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes. Every episode, I'll have a guest and we'll talk about everything related to food, not necessarily ingredients or dishes, but how through food we can help communities, the success of small business owners, the fascinating stories that we remember growing up with our family sitting around a table, and even which ingredients are overrated and underrated and much more. Don't forget to subscribe to my podcast and all the platforms you have access to. Follow me on Instagram at Turning Chickens Breaking Dishes and follow the Facebook page turning chickens, and breaking dishes. If you want to support this podcast, go to anchor.fm slash david-martins. Also, I want to mention that some interviews were recorded in a different microphone, so sometimes if the interview has a different audio, that's the reason. I hope you enjoy listening to every episode, and don't forget I'm Portuguese, so if something doesn't sound exactly right, just smile and pretend that you understand. My guest today is a food writer, food historian, professional cook, cookbook club host, recipe developer, podcast host. She has contributed to the Daily Telegraph, The Independent, and The Country Life magazine, and she's a judge at the 2020 British Charcuterie Awards. She was the winner of the Jane Grigson Trust Award 2018, the Fortnum & Mason Food and Drinks Awards, and Guild of Food Writers Awards. All of this for her cookbook, The Vinegar Cupboard, Recipes and History of an Everyday Ingredient. My guest believes that every dish, or almost, should have a dash of vinegar. Angela Clutton, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, thank you for having me and not so much of the almost everything.
0: Everything, absolutely everything. How are you doing today?
1: I'm really good, thank you.
0: Two important questions. Have you ever been to Portugal?
1: Um, I have been to Portugal. I had a really, really horrible holiday in Portugal Well, because, I'm so sorry, it poured down the entire time I and mean, we went in the middle of summer and all the locals were saying this is like a bad November. We can't believe how unlucky you are. Um, so I didn't catch Portugal at its best.
0: So thank you very much for coming, Angela. This was an absolutely pleasure. <laughs> Do <you know> <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: We're done.
0: We're done. Do you know any Portuguese words?
1: Um, I don't, so you can say anything you like.
0: It's okay. It's fine. We'll start uh, with your food historian part, kind of like more broad, big question, I guess. How important it is for us to understand the evolution of an ingredient until our modern days?
1: I think... I would say this, um, but I think we all who work in food, I think recognize that um, it we all come from somewhere in terms of our food work. Um, very few people are, you know, inventing something, it all is it, born of a food legacy. Um, and I always say, you know, the interesting thing for me about food is that it, in the past it tells you, and present actually, food tells you so much about people, place and time. Um, and it does so, so authentically. Um, and I think that it's such a great insight into different cultures, different ages, different peoples, different class systems. You know, you can see through you know, food how the wealthy are eating, how those who are struggling for eating. You can see it, you know, what how impact of wars. It can tell you so, so, so much. Um, and that, for me, is the interesting bit about food history. Is
0: there any example of a common vegetable or ingredient, as spice that has a fascinating story for you throughout the uh, years?
1: Do you know, well, I mean, this is going to sound like she would say this, but vinegar, really, and that's why I wrote The Vinegar that's why I got so interested in vinegar, because, you know, joking when we began about, you know, using vinegar in everything, and that is true, and as a cook, and if you, know, you as well, I'm sure you, you know, think acidity is really important in terms of, you know, balancing dishes, but for me, the thing that really kind of got me um, so immersed in the world of vinegar was its history, and what it tells you about people, place, and time. Different vinegars are different all over the world. Sherry vinegar tells you something wonderful about Andalusia. Rice vinegars can tell you so much about the regionality of China and Japan. You know, it, the, the same is true all over the cider vinegar in, in the States, in you know, wine vinegar in France. It tells it, it tells you so much, and so for me, vinegar, I think, is a really good example of Why I find food food history so interesting.
0: In your research for your book, what was the most fascinating detail about vinegar that you didn't know?
1: I think the whole thing about rice vinegar kind of blew my mind initially, because I could kind of, you know, when I started, you think, you you get, you get an apple, you you have apple juice, you can kind of get your head around that apple juice liquid becoming vinegar. Rice is a solid. You know yeah. how that becomes vinegar initially kind of blew my mind a bit um so i think that was the thing that was um a real way uh, to discover for me
0: for people listening can you describe a little bit the process for rice vinegar for just in case uh,
1: get- yes yeah, so it's solid state um fermentation so it's you know, very similar in lots of ways in terms of you know having the, the, the yeast and the bacteria for fermentation um but what happens is that then it uh it becomes a sort of sticky and then it kind of gets um liquid added to it to kind of draw out the vinegar from um, the fermented rice that wasn't very good it's better in the book no
0: (laughs) well that's that's why people have to buy the book and in your book so how did it start it was just really to explain to people how important vinegar is or you were just fascinated by by vinegar or there's something else
1: I think it's so underestimated. Certainly in the UK, I would say. I think it's um,
0: everywhere. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's true, isn't it? Even think, if it's not
0: vinegar, it's le- I'm sorry. if it's not vinegar, it's lemon or lime. The people always try to add some sort of something at the very end, right?
1: And it's and it's that thing about it. They all give acidity, which is brilliant, and so important. You know, I do always think that people reach for salt as being. balancer when they're cooking and indeed you know salt is so important obviously but I think acidity is a thing which often get missed so there's a little bit of that um but also I think people just don't really understand partly the cultural um associations with it which are a large part of what interests me but also the different flavour potential that comes with the different styles yeah we all know balsamic and we all know cider vinegar they're probably you know two of the most popular and they're both vinegars but also Just so different. And so then you just sort of take that and keep expanding that idea about how different the vinegars can be. And so I just thought that it would be interesting to try and take something which is so ordinary and try and show how extraordinary it can be.
0: Did you have to travel a lot for your research?
1: I, um, I was lucky enough to do quite a bit. Um, I went to Moderna, um which I think is probably, you know, a bit of a prerequisite, if you think, on vinegar and um, I was very lucky in my hosts um, because they were very open um, about uh, some of the complexities around balsamic vinegar and it is, you know, for a purchaser, buying balsamic can be a bit of a minefield and I think some of the producers are aware of that. Um, so it was very interesting to talk to them. I went up to Orkney, do you know where Orkney is? No: So Orkney is um, a tiny island at the top of Scotland, um, and it is um, completely beautiful, absolutely divine, and um, very rustic and very wild and sort of all the things you imagine a kind of remote Scottish island to be. Mm-hmm. And there's um, some people up there called um, Orkney craft vinegar, and they do malt vinegar. And in the UK, you know, malt vinegar is massive. Sarsen's is the one which everyone has in their kitchen cupboard. Um, And malt vinegar is sort of our traditional vinegar. And so I wanted to go and see them and see somebody who was making a real... I tend not to love the word artisan, but it's really applicable here, you know, a real artisan, malt vinegar. So I went up to Orkney. Yes, I was, you know, I went around about quite a bit to kind of uh, get some ideas of people's stories. I wasn't able to get everywhere, but I um, was lucky enough to be able to kind of meet quite a lot of vinegar makers.
0: What makes a good vinegar
1: great vinegar? I think it's about layers of flavour. You know, if you're using sherry vinegar as my desert island, you know, vinegar, if I could have one vinegar for the rest of the time, it would be... For sherry.
0: breakfast, for lunch, yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep. yeah, maybe not on the cornflakes, <laughs> <you know>. um, <laughs> It uh, has a wonderful depth and uh, real layers within it in terms of its colour and its flavour character and its smell. And I think that is what you're looking for in a really interesting vinegar, you know. I have to say also though that what what I consider you know baseline supermarket vinegars are completely fine for loads of things, but if you're wanting to use a vinegar more as a kind of finishing touch uh, element, um, then you can go for something that has real kind of you know uh, layers. I keep saying the word layers, but has more layers within it. Then you really notice the difference. But you know when you're wanting just acidity, you can go for something which is just flatter and it will do a perfectly decent job.
0: Do you think vinegar, it's a little bit like olive oil? Sometimes it's worth it to spend a few more pounds since you're in England or dollars and (laughs) you do get that quality?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I do think that's right. Um, I think that so much of vinegar is uh, in terms of production, it's about time and time is money and all of that. So if a vinegar has been made in quite a traditional way, um, that takes a long time. Um, it has been aged, obviously that's more time. And so all of that contributes to the price being higher, a real, you know, baseline, I keep saying supermarket vinegar, but I think, you know, we all know the kind of thing we mean, um, they are made really fast in an acetate machine. So obviously you don't have the time for the flavors to develop. Um, But it's quicker and therefore it's cheaper. So it's a bit of a broad brushstroke to say as it is with anything because people can play fast and loose with the principle, I suppose. Broadly speaking, I think you do get what you pay for.
0: The evolution in the last 20 years for you of British food.
1: Ah, yes. Well, I think we, hmm. I think British food has a bit of a bad rap internationally um, and certainly used to. And I think we're getting better. We're very good culinary sponges, I think. You know, we liked um, taking in um, or being influenced by the cuisines of other cultures, the Ottolenghi, you know, world of food is huge over here now and has been probably, you know, for the last decade. And that's an influence which is quite, quite new. I think, you know, Claudia Rogin was doing that kind of thing you know, earlier, but it didn't really take off, you know, until the last decade. So I think that things we have started to look even more at cultural influences of people who are you know, coming to the UK and bringing their food ideas and we're very good I think I hope we're very good at kind of embracing that kind of enjoy it and um, I also think we have got much better at valuing um, provenance of produce and being more aware um, I think I think this is probably true you know in lots of different countries being more aware of how our food is made how animals are looked after how it's grown and all of that and so the, the quality of the baseline produce, I think, is much better. And so I think the nev- inevitably then that has an impact on the quality overall of cooking being better. But all of that, unfortunately, has to be massively counterbalanced by the fact that there's a lot of people living in the UK who would listen to my last two minutes and say, you're dreaming. You know, mm-hmm. We have you know, a food poverty problem over here, um, which I think is important to recognise as well. And I would, unfortunately... Definitely have to say that has got much worse over the last 10 years. So I think in terms of food, we're quite polarized. Again, this may be something which um, probably many countries could say the same thing over the last um, decade or so, but we are, are, unfortunately in terms of food, I think a bit of a have and have nots.
0: What is the best example of food shaping a culture or a culture shaping their food?
1: Oh gosh, all of us. I think it's probably really hard to pick. I think we all do. We're all a product of the land. Um, And I think, again, I don't want to keep, you know, going on about vinegar, but that's one of the things that really interested me that, you know, France is a wine country. They grow grapes, they make wine, they have wine vinegar. Japan, China, other countries around you, that region, they have rice, rice, it's all all a product of the land. Um, And so I think one of the wonderful things about food that unites us is that we all have those stories, even if they're very, very different. We can all look back into our heritage, and you know, be able to find those things, even if phases certainly in British history, food history, where you know, we weren't exactly covering ourselves with glory food wise. But those mm-hmm. things tell you something also about the politics of the time or the finances of the time or that were you know, world wars and all those things. So um, I think we all do. And I kind of love that.
0: So even talking about modern day, where do you see food shaping culture or culture shaping food the most?
1: For the UK, I would say we are still being very, very influenced by Middle Eastern food um, and by an exploration of Middle Eastern culture. And then also we we have people like Olya Hercules who are doing wonderful work about bringing over cuisine which sort of crosses a kind of, you know, Asia, Eastern European sort of, you know, boundaries of stuff. Um, So I think that we are really pushing to understand more about those cultures. Um, and, that, uh, and so often that's done through food.
0: Which ingredient used to be popular many years ago and today people don't eat it and vice versa?
1: I don't know, in the UK, you have things like um, jellied eels, which are, you know, do you want know what a jellied eels is?
0: I have no idea, Angela. Okay,
1: well, you know what <laughs> eel is, I guess. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So jellied eels is one of those um, real London wartime things which, you know... Grandmothers who were growing up in East End in London would like have jelly deals for breakfast And it's sort of an eel in aspic really mm-hmm. and exactly as delicious or not as that sounds Things like that are really kind of not um, not exactly making a comeback yet I guess they yeah. might but, let's, yeah, let's, let's hope us. not,
0: yeah, okay <laughs> Yeah.
1: I anyway, know. Um, but some of that kind of wartime stuff I think for us is um, still kind of looked at And we're, kind of, we're not quite ready to go back to it yet
0: how much more limited a diet was before globalization?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, hugely so. Um, but also, well, hugely so in terms of, you know, you, you relying on what you had. And you know, as you know, I was saying earlier about it's all being a product of the land. And so you, that's what you, 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 you ate, what you grew you know, in, in very broad terms. Um, and so with globalization, obviously, you're then able to kind of import and export as well. Um, and so that changes things up. I think there's a problem sometimes with exporting that we don't, so mackerel is really interesting example, I think that we have so much mackerel around the waters in the UK, but most of it is exported. Whereas in times gone by, obviously that mackerel would have been like gold down the coast as the seasons change and there's mackerel swimming down at different points in the year the different regions would have been desperate to have their mackerel haul come in so globalization you know has changed what comes in but also has changed what goes out
0: does your knowledge as a food historian influence the way you judge for example at the british charcuterie awards
1: yeah well i haven't done it yet um okay. so i'm sure it will um in that you know, charcuterie is not something which the brits classically have done yeah. You know we we do do you know some of meats and things but not really in a charcuterie sense that, they, that we all think of it um, so I think that's something which has really kind of burgeoned through in the last few years there's been some producers who have really kind of you know been coming up with some great stuff I think it's good to have an awareness of where these things come from and the the global and historical context but also I think it's You've got to do that and balance it up with modern tastes and modern audience and modern palate, and not be too, you know, be, in terms of the, the charcuterie stuff, people aren't trying to emulate something, not trying to copy something, they're trying to do something distinctive. I think it's good to have the context but also look at it in its own right as well.
0: So shifting the conversation a little bit, what was your first memory of taste?
1: Oh, that's a really hard one, isn't it? My first memory of food is watching my mum make chocolate chip cookies. I'm the youngest um, in the family, and so I remember being in the kitchen while we were making cookies for my two sisters when they came home from school. Um, I don't remember what they tasted like, so maybe my sisters snaffled them. But I certainly remember (laughs) um, being in the kitchen making them. I don't know, I can't think what my first taste would have been. It's all those things like, ice cream and actually thinking about it, my associations are not so much to do with taste, more to do with emotional connections. Thinking of things like having ice cream in a cone And the ice cream falling out and being completely devastated. And then my mum taking me back to get another one, even though, you know, it was my complete fault for not being careful enough with it. And so it's sort of, you know, uh, stories like that, I think, are things that I think of my very early food experience. Being ill and having, you know, particular foods that just make you feel that little bit better. It's more more that natural taste.
0: I probably know the answer for this next question, uh, but I'm going to ask you to give probably a different answer, but what's the most underrated ingredient? Because I'm sure you're going to say vinegar.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I probably would. Um, Underrated. Mm, I'm going to go for butter. I think butter is a little bit like vinegar in a sense, in that um, people think, oh, it's just butter. um, And not really maybe taking enough time to think about how has it been made? What is the quality of the basic ingredients that have gone into it? Um, and again, very much about your history and legacy and all those things. And so, I, yeah, I feel uh, that butter probably is still slightly underrated.
0: I go through so much butter in my house that sometimes I actually I don't know. Maybe I'm washing my hair with butter because <laughs> I buy sticks and sticks of butter and they're just gone. Uh, but that's why French cuisine is so good, because there's just a lot of butter.
1: Well, I, I think that's a very positive sign. Don't you? Yeah. I think that's good. And it, it drives me nuts when people buy um, what I, you know, call the fake fats. You know, have those on the taste. My sister does it. I think she does it just to drive me nuts. Yeah. You know, I can't bear it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's, you know, I just think I wish people understood more about, you know, real fats and fake fats.
0: The most overrated ingredient.
1: Overrated. Oh, that's very, very tough. Well, again, I hate to bring it back to vinegar again, but I'm going to say balsamic. Because I think that, I think there's a huge misunderstanding about what different balsamic vinegar is. Obviously, if you read the vinegar cupboard, you won't have any misunderstanding at all. But I think broadly speaking, there is a large misunderstanding about the word balsamic and just that having the word... immediately transfers something which is luxurious and delicious and it doesn't some of them are terrible so I think um, maybe I'm saying more misunderstood but I think overrated and think that we had certainly had a period over here where chefs would put it on everything Everything. on the menu in the hope that added some sort of you know luster to it I think we're happily beyond that a little bit but I think uh, I think balsamic for me
0: the best breakfast you can have
1: best breakfast um really good but not sourdough uh, toast with some scrambled eggs
0: what's the strangest combination food-wise people might do it that you just cannot accept
1: oh these are hard questions david
0: well i try my best thank you <laughs>
1: <laughs> what, can't, what can't i accept um i don't go for marmite so anything with marmite probably wouldn't really do
0: it for me i've shared here before but i'm going to share with you a few answers that i that people eat it and i was very shocked by the answer one was a coleslaw sandwich Mm. just a coleslaw you know as you do on a friday afternoon popcorn and tomato soup no that's
1: just weird
0: yeah but this one might be also slightly weird which is a banana and mayo sandwich
1: ah oh, okay. Well, then, that you see, you've hit on something which I can't bear. Tomato and um, bananas rather are my complete no-go area. Um, so, and mayonnaise, it, assuming it's store-bought mayonnaise, which is also my complete no-go. Homemade mayonnaise, I could have that on a sandwich on its own and be perfectly happy. But bananas in store-bought mayonnaise would be my absolute idea of torture.
0: The podcast name is Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. That's two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience. And breaking dishes means someone that exceeded expectations. Do you think you've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes?
1: Hmm. Um, I don't know, really. I guess what you will want think about ourselves is a bit of both. You know, strike a balance in between. I don't okay. know. That's good.
0: So this is the part I I tell my guests to sell their fish. In Portugal, if you, means that people talk about themselves a little bit. So where people can find you, where people can find a book, what's next for you? (laughs)
1: Sell my fish. Sell your fish. Um I have had the most glorious run at um the award season um over in the UK for um food books. Um, and I uh, won at the Fortnite Mason Awards and I won two at the Guild of Food Writers Awards and was shortlisted with the Andre Simon. Um, so I'm very proud of the vinegar cupboard um, and it's available on Amazon and all usual book outlets. Um, I am doing quite a lot, I do anyway do quite a lot of work with Borough Market which I'm sure you're familiar with, it's London's premier food market and we are doing a range of um, digital talks into kind of food and food culture and we're doing those as podcasts so if you go to usual podcast places, Spotify what have you um, you can find the um, Borough Talks under Borough Market there um, and, you know, I'm trying to kind of, you know, get my head into what my next book might be, Vinegar covered was my first book. And so, you know, interesting for me to kind of take in this time and be really trying to think what, uh, you know, what my next book might be. But at the moment, I'm still very much enjoying the success of The Vinegar Cupboard.
0: Angela, this was a pleasure. Thank you, very, thank you very much for coming in. You know, I hope nothing but the best for you. So thank you very much.
1: Thanks so much.
0: Thank you very much for listening to the episode. I want to thank all of you for the comments and reviews. And for those that haven't done that, don't forget to subscribe, rate, leave a review, please. Tell your friends all about the chickens we are turning and the dishes we are breaking. In the next episodes, I will start a new feature called the Embassy Chef's Corner. So if you want to leave me a question or a comment, you can find me on Instagram at Turning Chickens Breaking Dishes. On the Facebook page Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. You can also send me an email to the longest email ever created, which is info at turning chickens and If you want to support this podcast, go to anchor.fm slash david-martins. See you next time. Adios.